Welcome back to Franklin Covey's On Leadership Series, now the largest distributed and subscribed to podcast in the world dedicated to the topic of leadership. My name is Scott Miller, and I am privileged to serve as Franklin Covey's host and interviewer each week. Today, our guest is the renowned professor, leader, and author Joel Peterson, who has now authored his second book titled Entrepreneurial Leadership, The Art of Launching New Ventures, Inspiring Others, and running stuff. Joel Peterson has been a professor at the Stanford Business School for nearly 30 years. He is a member of Franklin Covey's Board of Directors also for 30 years, a member of the JetBlue Board of Directors for 20 years, most of which he's served now as chairman of the board. Joel Peterson, welcome to On Leadership. Nice to be with you, Scott. Joel, you've done a few things in your few years as a business leader. You spent many years with the Trammell Crow Company. You've been a very close personal friend of our co-founder, Dr. Stephen R. Covey, who most of our listeners know passed just about eight years ago. You've been a member of our board of directors for nearly 30 years, shepherding us through the launch of a small boutique leadership company to a merger with Franklin Covey to now thriving as one of the most prestigious and largest leadership development firms in the world. Take a few moments, if you will, and orient our listeners and our viewers from around the world to your own business career, and then we'll jump into your newest book, Entrepreneurial Leadership. Great. Thanks, Scott. So I started my business career at age 11, uh, selling vegetables around the neighborhood. Uh, I hired my little brother to deliver them in a red radio flyer wagon, and that was my first entrepreneurial experience. After that, I worked as a dishwasher, as a lab technician, thinned sugar beets, had a paper route, mowed lawns, and uh, did anything I could to, to make a little bit of money. I then went to uh, Harvard Business School where I didn't learn as much as I did in those, other, in those early entrepreneurial activities. Uh, but once I graduated from Harvard Business School, I went to work for a fellow by the name of Trammell Crow, who was a real estate developer. And uh, I was sent to the French Riviera to develop uh, buildings I ended up spending about two years in France developing buildings, was called back to the United States, became the treasurer of a company that didn't have any cash, and then was made chief financial officer. I spent about 20 years at Crow, uh, ultimately becoming its managing partner. Uh, when I left there, I uh, actually started teaching at Stanford Business School and formed my own private equity company. So I started to buy other companies, invest in other companies, serve on boards. Etc. I didn't know what private equity was, but one day somebody said that that was the business I was in. I thought I was really just investing in companies and helping people grow their businesses. Uh, one of those businesses was the Jet was JetBlue. I was approached because they had a terminal to build at JFK, which was kind of a bet the company uh, project, and they didn't have anybody on the board who'd ever built a building. So I went to JetBlue. I helped uh, develop T5 at JFK. Uh, we were able to bring it in on budget and uh, ahead of time. And at some point, I became the chairman of JetBlue and served there for 12 years. I'll be retiring as chair this May. So in another month, I'll no longer be chairman of JetBlue. But I continue to invest in companies. I continue to serve on boards. I continue to teach at Stanford Business School. Jill, it's, it's a uh, indisputably impressive career trajectory. Did you ever have the calling of public service, perhaps to run for public office or take all that you'd learned and your and really your passion around serving your community and your country and think about perhaps running for office ever, ever cross your mind? 
I've had people ask me to run for office. I don't think I'm particularly good at some of the things that politicians are really good at. Uh, but I, I, I played with it a little bit. I've thought about uh, the last chapter of my career being in that arena. Yeah. So I think there's still, I'm, I still feel young. I'm, although I'm old, I still feel young. And so that may be in my future at some level. Well, sign me up, sir. When it's ready to come, you know my, you know my email address. Look forward to that. Jill, you are an acclaimed professor at the Stanford Business School. You have authored several books, a book that came out um, a couple of years ago that you refreshed and re-released this past year called The Ten Laws of Trust. That really is the culmination of 10 lessons that you've learned on how to build a high-trust culture, a high-trust business, how to be a high-trusted leader. On the heels of that book and the re-release, you have now authored another book. In fact, this book has been in you for over a decade. I remember you talking about this book with me at a Franklin Covey board, board meeting, gosh, five, six years ago. You now have released it, Entrepreneurial Leadership. Talk a bit about why you wrote this most recent book. Well, I feel like the world needs more entrepreneurial leaders. And by entrepreneurial leaders, I mean people who can create durable change, who really understand the business from soup to nuts, and who are able to cover all the bases that really uh, go from being an entrepreneur, initiating new uh, kinds of ideas, uh, creating new processes, all the way to uh, building a durable enterprise. And I felt like that's a really important thing as I see leaders who have only one or two of the characteristics of the entrepreneurial leader. Uh, so I, I just learned a lot leading different businesses, teaching uh, students, serving as a coach on various boards. And I really felt like I might be able to provide a series of maps around the things that virtually every leader runs into where they might be able to refer to checklists and uh, mindsets and ways of going about solving problems that would actually be helpful to them. It was provoked by uh, a near tragedy my wife had. And uh, so uh, that really got me thinking that I needed to write some things down and get them in the hands of others. In fact, that story on itself about your wife is quite compelling in the opening. Uh, it, it ends up great for those of, the, of you, you who are buying the book right now and excited to read it. The book really is in two parts, Joel, right? The first half you've divided into four sections, with each of those four sections having multiple parts, building trust, creating a mission, secure a team, and deliver results. That really is the first half of the book. The second half of the book, which we'll talk about today, is all around these 10 maps that really you've culled from your, you know, I'm going to guess, better part of 50 plus years of being in business. Uh, some successes, some challenges, but we'll spend some time talking about these 10 maps, as I think it makes the book extraordinary. And I've, I'll bet these 10 steps become a TED Talk or something substantial um, as your book gains traction. What I'd like to do is open today's conversation now, talking about the five types of leaders that you illustrate in your book to set up a sixth type called entrepreneurial leader. I'm gonna pitch you the type and ask you if you'll give us a minute or so on each of these five types of leaders that you've come to recognize over your 50 plus years in business. The first is the presider. Talk a bit about the presider. So I don't uh, dismiss any of these as being really important. They're all somewhat limited. The presider is somebody who maintains the status quo, who cuts ribbons, kiss ba kisses babies, uh, executes policy, keeps things moving forward. And I think it's quite 
uh, valuable to have somebody who is a presider. Uh, but it's not enough to adapt to the market, to hire great teams, to do all the things that the entrepreneurial leader needs to do. But I think it's one element that's important. You could argue that there are certain phases of a business when a presider might be just fine for a certain period of time, perhaps where the board or the founders are looking for the future leader to pivot for a new, a new opportunity. Yeah, I think maintaining stability, presiders yeah. are great. Right. The second type of leader you call the manager. Talk about that person. So the manager is the person who can uh, deal with complexity. Managers are phenomenal. They can deal with all kinds of information, uh, sort it out, put it in order, create processes, and manage the complexity. Third type is the administrator. So administrators are typically people who understand policy really well, the implications of policy and getting policy right. Policy is quite a powerful thing and, and sort of creates the framework within which businesses operate. So great administrators are really valuable. And then Joel, interestingly, your fourth distinguishing leadership uh, style, if you will, you call it the pure entrepreneur, which you would think it might be about entrepreneur leadership, but it's not. It's a different type of entrepreneur. Talk about the, the pure entrepreneur. So there are, are a few people in uh, our business world who are phenomenal at lighting fires. They have an idea a minute, they can create new things and they're really valuable. Uh, but many of them have a hard time keeping the fire burning and turning it into something that is durable, where they can bring teams on, where they bring their successor on. There's actually a thing called the founder's trap where founders start the company and then the trap is they can't take it to the next level. So the pure entrepreneur is an innovator, a, a fire lighter. And then lastly, the politician, the fifth one. Yeah, so politicians understand power and they're really good at sort of rewarding friends, punishing enemies, getting things done through compromise. So I think it, while politicians have sort of a low rating in today's society among many people, they actually play quite a valuable uh, safety valve role. And the same thing with leaders in organizations. There are some people who just understand the politics of an organization and they're able to move things through that would otherwise get gummed up. And then Joel, naturally, uh, juxtapose these five types of leaders that you've encountered, you've hired, I'm gonna guess you've fired, you've coached all five of these types. Perhaps you've been some of these yourselves. What, what are the key distinguishing characteristics between these five and the entrepreneurial leader? Well, I think the entrepreneurial leader understands that all five are necessary, that all five types are necessary. Uh, they don't necessarily have to be all five of them, but they have to bring onto their team and empower somebody who can do each of those five elements because you don't have complete leadership without all five being present. I use the term the five tool player, which people who know baseball are very aware that the five tool player can run, throw, hit for power, hit for average and field. They have to be able to do all five of those. And there are not many players in the major leagues even who are great five-tool players. But when you have somebody who's a five-tool player, they become an all-star, they become a hall of famer. And so the, the entrepreneurial leader is the same kind of five-tool player. They don't necessarily have to be able to do all of them themselves, like a baseball player does, but they have to appreciate them, bring people on who can do them, empower them, celebrate them, and create a whole.
Joel, as a private equity investor in, in hundreds of companies, you have founded a few, you've helped to sell a few, you've invested in hundreds, some more successful than others. Talk to our listeners and viewers around, when you coach a pure entrepreneur, like a founding entrepreneur, and you need her or him to move to become an entrepreneur leader, what are the, what are the types of coaching conversations do you have that are probably high courage where someone has been able to move from one of these five exclusively to becoming a true entrepreneurial leader. What is that conversation like? Usually it has to do uh, with things like bringing on a great team, identifying the areas where they're not strong and filling them in with people who are phenomenal in a high trust environment where values are shared. Uh, because business is a team sport. And if you don't create that team, and, and frankly, if the, entre if the original entrepreneur doesn't understand where his or her weaknesses are, where the gaps are, they'll be reluctant to bring on great team members who can fill those gaps. I remember Peter Drucker once telling me that uh, my job was to understand where my weaknesses were and to build on my strengths and fill in my weaknesses with other people. I think that's what the great entrepreneurial leader does is build the system around him that completes the picture of the of the entrepreneurial or complete leader. A few people become all of them. Uh, I actually list a couple of people in the book that surprise yeah. most readers. Right. Uh, I list Alan Mulally, who nobody thinks would be an entrepreneurial leader. He led Boeing after all, and then Ford Motor Company. But he's really quite creative, quite innovative, quite able to manage a large organization. And I also list Stan McChrystal who again was a four-star general uh, who dealt with uh, the special operations uh, forces in our country. And he was quite entrepreneurial. He was able to knit them together in a way that really made a difference. Joel, as an investor, have there been times when you've invested in a pure entrepreneur because you felt like their skills at that point, their idea was great and there became a time when it was clear to you whether because you were on their board or you were an investor, that it was time for them to step aside, step out, step um, away because they didn't have the right skills for the next phase of the business. And how has that gone and how do they respond? Sure, uh, that happens quite frequently. In fact, usually when you invest in a new business, you are really backing the entrepreneur, yeah. their energy, their creativity, their ability to create something new. In many cases, the entrepreneur can't take it to the next level. Uh, and in some cases, they can't yet take it to the next level. I think one case that everyone knows about is Steve Jobs, who hit a wall at a certain point in time at Apple. He left, did some other things, came back, and then was actually quite successful at it. Um, I think the founder of JetBlue is the same way. David Nieleman is the most brilliant entrepreneur I've ever worked with in terms of creating a new airline. But in the first phases of JetBlue, moving to the next phase, was not in, up his power alley. He then went out and formed Azul, created a big success there, and is back at creating new airlines again. And I think he's learned to become an entrepreneurial leader. Joel, I've been privileged to know you in some capacity for you know close to 20 years, more so in the last decade or so, as I've been a member of Franklin Covey's executive team. I think it's refreshing, it's inspiring, it's um, comforting to know that someone like you, that is in some cases sort of the, the faceless, nameless, you know, chairman of the board of major companies, that you're really fixated to some extent on how important trust is to an organization, to growing, to building, to how important culture is, 
how valuable values are. Would you talk from the highest level of you know, large corporations? You're the chairman of the board. I mean, in some cases, the CEO you know, serves at your pleasure, the board's pleasure. Of all the lessons you've learned in your entrepreneurial journey, why have trust and culture and values been right there at the top? It's interesting, you know, people think of them as really soft right. uh, ideas. They're soft, fuzzy, vague. They don't know how to turn them into something that is hard, measurable, et cetera. My experience is that trust is the operating system of a life well-led and an organization well-managed. And if you ever get in trouble, uh, it will be trust that gets you out of it. You'll need the trust of your suppliers, of your lenders, of your investors, of your team members. And that will be what sees you through the hard times. People can get through times that are going well, maybe with a lower level of trust. They can just use power. So I think organizations tend to be either driven by power, control, somebody can either reward or punish you, and they can get things done through that, or they're driven by trust and a sense of duty and shared values. The latter is far more powerful, far more durable, far more able to see you through tough times than the pure power equation. Jill, I've heard you speak about, and you write extensively in both of your books and in other posts and interviews, how important predictability is in an entrepreneur leader, right? That in order for you to create a high trust culture and build trust, you have to have underlying values that allow you to be predictable with your investors, with your, your, your employees and your peers. Talk, talk to how you've come to learn that and the role that plays in how you choose to invest, how you hire, how you fire. Well, anybody who's worked for an unpredictable leader uh, will appreciate this. If you work for somebody who's mercurial, who you don't know how they'll respond to things, you don't dare make any decisions. You take every decision to that leader. Only the leaders that are predictable, where you say, this is how so-and-so would decide this, they are then empowered. They can then go out and make decisions confident that the leader will respect it and support it and uh, be behind whatever they do. So I think the idea of having a high trust relationship with your uh, subordinates, with your team members, is really one of being absolutely predictable. Your promise is your brand. Your word is your promise. You deliver on what you say you'll do, and therefore they can move forward. Joel, speak to the listener, the viewer, that has maybe built their brand on being somewhat unpredictable because either the culture rewards that or it was a survival tactic or it's what they were modeled from a previous leader. Now, it will take a self-aware listener and viewer right now to say, you know what, Joel is talking about me, not about my boss. What if, if you were coaching one of our listeners that had built their brand around being unpredictable, how can someone move out of that reputation and becoming, become more predictable as, as an asset? I think first you ask them if they realize how unpredictable they are. Yeah. Uh, a lot of people don't recognize they're unpredictable. In fact, what they like is that people come to them for all decisions. And I always tell those kinds of leaders, if you're making decisions that are 70, 30 calls, you're missing it. You should be only making decisions that are 51, 49 decisions. Your team should feel so empowered that when a call is a 70, 30 call, they just go ahead and make it hmm. and they know they'll have your support. So I think it starts with that. Um, and, and a lot of things start with aha moments, with realizations, with being open to that. I think if you're not vulnerable and open to 
feedback and learning, the odds of you becoming a, an entrepreneurial high trust leader go down and they go down significantly. Joel, you serve on several boards. You are a member of the JetBlue board for now 20 years, 12 of which I believe as the chair. In fact, you were on the board before they actually were flying any planes or even owned any planes. What, right. um, what, what stories would you share about JetBlue? And I would love if there's one of them. You, 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 in the book, you share a story around how JetBlue's business model, a flywheel, was around owning a particular airplane and they decided to branch out and it was a, a scary time. What are some lessons that you would share with our, our subscribers and listeners around what it's like to be in an entrepreneurial organization like JetBlue? Well, we had a phenomenal entrepreneur, David Nieleman, uh, who was a genius entrepreneur and he had been at Southwest Airlines for five months. They had, brought, they had bought the company that David uh, led before that. So he went there for five months and he really learned from Herb Keller, this model of having a single plane type. Herb flow, flew uh, Boeing 737s uniquely. And he wanted one type uh, for all the reasons of simplicity. So David started out with Airbus A320s and we were committed to those. And at some point in time, he decided that there were a lot of city pairs that weren't served well by the a 320 by the A320 and that we needed a smaller plane, a hundred seat, two by two Embraer 190. And it was quite a decision because it was a, a departure from our model. And uh, there was quite a bit of debate for a long period of time on the board as to whether or not to go to a second plane type. We ultimately did uh, and there were challenges with it just as everybody had thought there would be. But in the end, I still believe it was a good decision. I still believe we ended up serving a lot of secondary and tertiary cities that we would not otherwise have been able to serve had we not made the shift. Uh, JetBlue's reputation is, of course, extraordinary. Uh, I can imagine what it's like now to be the chairman of the board in the middle of the COVID-19 pandemic. Any other lessons you might share from your time at JetBlue in terms of how you've coached, I think maybe now three or four CEOs, other members of the board? What, what insights could our audience learn from what it's like to be inside of a company like JetBlue? JetBlue is a great company, has a great culture, a great team, and has built high trust. I mean, we are differentiated by our culture. If you think about it, the airline business is a commodity business. Everybody flies roughly the same metal between the same uh, cities. Uh, and so how do you differentiate? Uh, and the only way really is by having a unique culture. So we call it the JetBlue experience. And it's based on high trust, uh, a high concern for customer, not only safety, but experience. We call it the JetBlue experience. We actually think the JetBlue experience is different from the experience customers have on any other carrier. And that's allowed us to get through some of these tough times. Now, we are currently in a very difficult uh, and challenging moment, as are many, many businesses, many industries. And I've actually thought that this book uh, might be helpful because it talks about people becoming entrepreneurial leaders. I think that's going to be required of many leaders, many leaders who were, before they were presiders, maybe just politicians or managers, they're actually gonna have to integrate a lot of things, become entrepreneurial leaders. I think our management team at JetBlue has become that and in a high trust culture. It's serendipitous, but I think the timing of your book is going to be extraordinary for leaders who are finding the world shifting you know, out from under them and how do they keep 
How do they keep going? Joel, you've been involved in a lot of successful upstarts. You were involved in Bonobos, the, the fairly famous you know, uh, clothing company, of which I'm a fan and, and, a, and a, a pretty consistent buyer of their pants and such. And you have you know, several different stories. You know both of the founders fairly well. I'd like you to share two stories, and not because they should be juxtaposed, but they're very different stories. There's one story of one of the Bonobos founders who came to you, I believe, after leaving the Bonobos organization, went off on his own, and brought to you an idea and how you chose to move forward with it a little bit sight unseen. Walk us through that story. Well, you're talking about Brian Spaley, who's a wonderful guy and a great entrepreneur, and uh, but he left under conditions of a dispute with the other co-founder. Over reasonable reasons, uh, they just didn't see the world exactly the same way. And Brian left incredibly graciously, very thoughtfully, didn't hurt the business, didn't hurt his partner, even though there was conflict. And uh, so he uh, started a new company called Trunk Club uh, that he eventually sold to Nordstrom. And uh, he came to me with the idea and he said, I'll send you a PPM, which is a private placement memorandum, which sort of is the thick document that tells you everything about the company. And I said, Brian, I don't need a PPM. I want to invest in you. I'll back you. And he said, well, you don't need to know more about the business. I said, I know everything I know by knowing you. And it was really an expression of confidence in him, in his character, in who he was and what he wanted to do next. I didn't need the PPM. I mean, perhaps it's counterintuitive, right? I don't imagine a lot of private equity investors invest, you know, PPM sight unseen. But what you're reinforcing is someone's reputation, their character, their values, their trust, their predictability is a big criteria in how you choose to put your and your investors' money into their projects. I think particularly in startup ventures, you know, in, in many startup cases, you really don't have market data. You don't have information on customers. You don't have a lot of uh, things that you can underwrite. Uh, so you really are underwriting the character of the entrepreneur. You're really underwriting that person's values, their stick to their hard work, their honesty. And uh, so it, I don't think it's that unusual or that rare or that crazy an idea. Joel, you have a long relationship with the, the founders of Bonobos. You share another story that was you know, piercingly insightful about how important our predictability is, our values, our character. I go back to reputation. But I think another founding member, when you were part of an initial fundraising uh, round of fundraising, and then you demurred, you backed out of a second round because of uh, the level of trust that you were feeling. Can you walk us through that story and what the lesson is for our listeners to learn? Well, it's interesting. They, uh, they had so much success early on that they came to me and they wanted to uh, have a second investment. And they said, the value of the company is up tenfold. And uh, so I thought about it and looked at it and said, okay, I'll invest. And a week later, they came back and said, actually, the company's up 15-fold in value. And I, uh, I was not comfortable with that. I was, I was really uncomfortable with the idea that they were on a trajectory they would not be able to maintain. And it wouldn't really be good for the business to have that kind of a quick increase because the next time they had to raise capital, people would expect that trajectory to maintain. And as it flattened out, they might have trouble. So I just declined. And, um, and it, there was some tension over it. Over time, I came back in on the third round and actually 
was invited on the board and became a sort of lead director in the company. So it all turned out well, but I really regarded it as my job as a, a former professor to these fellows and somebody who was really fond of them to not do a deal that I thought was not smart for them. Jill, I want to save some time to talk about some of the 10 maps, which are the second half of your book. Before I go there, you share a lot of successes in the book. They're not braggart. They're not um, grandiose. They're just real successes. You share a couple of missed opportunities. Uh, what would you share with our listeners around something you regret, a mistake that you made, a breach of trust? You confused, as you mentioned, your instincts with your emotions. Uh, share a learning for us. Yeah, so the, the, probably the most painful one for me is around my very first uh, career move, which is to work for Trammell Crow, a man I loved and an organization I loved and wanted to build. And uh, there came a time when I really felt like it was headed in the wrong direction. I did my best to slow its growth, uh, to convince people to do something uh, that they weren't really ready not to do. And ultimately I left, I moved to the West Coast and began looking for a next career. And uh, I actually started buying companies and uh, thinking about uh, just leaving the real estate industry altogether. Uh, so my uh, partners came to me and said that they wanted me to come back. It was a time of stress. Turns out that my instincts had been about right, that the markets were getting overbuilt and they wanted me to come back and lead the company through a kind of a turnaround. My instincts told me that this would not be a good thing. I was on the West Coast, they were in Texas. Uh, I don't think I had the support of the, the, some of the other senior partners. So my instincts weren't that I should do this, but I loved these people and I cared about them. After all, I'd spent 15 years in the trenches with them. I'd hired many of them. So my emotions said, go back and do this thing. And I followed my emotions, spent the next two and a half years commuting from the West Coast to Dallas every week. Wow. Go out on Sunday night at midnight and didn't get home till Friday night. Uh, and uh, it turned out poorly. I was in, it turned out that I was fired and sued and um, hmm. ended up taking several years to kind of sort my way through it. So my instincts were right. My emotions pulled me into a direction that uh, was not a good one. Well, you give hope to everyone, including me, because even you have been fired and managed to have an amazing <laughs> career, right? So <laughs> thanks for your vulnerability. Joel, the second half of your book, which is a treasure, shares a lifetime, right, a sage's worth of 10 maps. And these are the maps. They're about 10 pages apiece. Map one, how to make decisions. Map two, how to sell. Map three, how to negotiate. Map four, how to raise capital. Map five, how to communicate. Map six, how to run great meetings. Seven, how to use a board effectively. Eight, how to overcome adversity. Nine, how to survive growth. And 10, how to drive change. We don't have time to review them all. Buy the book. It's an audio and video or, um, and print. It's easy to read. Uh, let's talk about the first map, how to make decisions. You just spoke to this, but you talk a lot in that chapter about recognizing your instincts from your emotions. What would you share about the difference in when to run with either or neither? Well, I don't think you run with your emotions. Uh, I do think you pay attention to your instincts. However, they need to be based on facts. You need to gather all the information you can, but not more than you can and not delaying the decision. I think one of the points that I make is you do have to pull the trigger. Not to pull the trigger is to make a decision. So I think you have to gather the information, listen to your instincts, 
I say sleep on it. I've often found that I sort through things uh, in the middle of the night. I wake up the next morning with a decision and I live with it and then it start to implement it. And so I, some of these maps, as you, as you noted, uh, Scott, are really just things that uh, are my, mindsets, are ways to think about things, are ways to manage your emotions and your instinct, instincts in order to make good calls. Joel, your second map is titled How to Sell. You are a 30-year acclaimed, renowned professor at Stanford. You're often voted one of the favorites amongst your alumni and staff. You have a massive social media following on LinkedIn and Facebook from you know, decades of former students that are now CEOs and entrepreneurs, some successful, others not so. You shared in the book a piece of advice that you give to many of the graduating seniors coming out of your graduate school, I guess they're not seniors, graduate students, about the importance of having a sales role. Expand on that. So if you think about it, these MBA students have just spent probably close to a quarter of a million dollars yeah. learning how to do financial modeling, learning the things that consultants do, and I'm telling them to get out and sell product, which is a tough message for them. But my own belief is you learn more close to flesh and blood customers than you'll ever learn with any of these other things. Every business depends on having revenue and the great salespeople are the great listeners. Uh, if you really think about what great salespeople do, they don't push product. They're not, they're not slinging hash as it were. They're really listening to people and their needs and they're understanding what works for them and they're, they're uh, crafting responses. They're really solving problems. And I think the closer you can get to flesh and blood customers in your career and learn how to listen to them, the more effective you'll be as an overall leader, the more you'll, you're likely to become an entrepreneurial leader. Joel, I couldn't agree more with that. You know, I've been in the firm here at Franklin Covey for coming into my 25th year next year. And as you know, I spent the first, you know, 15 plus years in a frontline sales role, actually selling our solutions to universities, colleges, school districts, I then moved to the corporate side, managing a sales team, and came up on the sales ranks. And I believe that the, I believe the reason that I ultimately became the company's first chief marketing officer was not because I was especially creative or had a big marketing background. I had some education in that. It was because I think the CEO had some confidence. I, I understood the business model. I understood how our customers buy and don't buy. I understood the lifeblood of the company. And that you know Bob could teach anybody marketing principles, right? It's hard to teach someone really why and where your customers are and why they hire you or why they fire you. I think it is invaluable advice to anybody who wants to become a senior leader. Spend some time in the sales sign because not only will you understand your money-making model, you'll have a lot of empathy for how your company um, treats their salespeople and putting clients uh, at first as well. I'm guessing you've had a fair number of students resist your advice. Sure. You know, another thing I'd say that's related to that is whatever role you're in, you are actually in a sales role. Yes. Your sales may be internal, they may be external, but I found as a, so I was chief financial officer for 10 years and most of what I did was sell. I was selling to investors, I was selling to internal partners, I was selling to uh, up and coming staff, various things to do. You learn the art of persuasion, of listening to others, of crafting a response that they will then embrace. And so I think I would say that even if people don't fully embrace my advice to get close to the customer with a, with a product or a service, they should think of that themselves in a role as a salesperson. 
It's a new mindset. It's a great way to think about what you're doing. We're all in a service business. Joel, our time is tight, but I want to I want to touch on two final points. One of the third the third map of the ten is this map about how to negotiate, and I found that to be pretty captivating. Would you take a few moments, a few minutes, and recreate the story of you and your team deliberating on purchasing? the land I think it was in Los Angeles and the risks and rewards of that and, and what the process was. I think there's a lot of lessons to be learned. I want everybody to check in right now and listen to this story. Take your time on this. So uh, we wanted to, we had a big operation in Los Angeles, big warehouse operation, and the Chelly Air Force Base became available. And uh, we decided we wanted to get this, uh, this piece of land. It was, I think, a roughly a hundred acre piece of land. And so we debated on it and finally came up with our bid. And then we increased it by a certain amount to make sure we got it. And in the end, we got the bid, but by overbidding by several million dollars. In the end, many of the partners were really disappointed. They felt bad. There were kind of recriminations. I celebrated. My view was we wanted the property at a fair price, and this was a fair price. So I, I guess the takeaway from that is my view is negotiation are about finding fairness. And I think the more that you're solving for fairness and listening to other parties, the more you'll have repeat negotiations. Negotiations will be serial, not episodic. And so I've always tried to govern my life by having a conversation, not a debate, not a, a power play, and listening to the other party and trying to solve for something that is fair, that both parties can live with. I think if you make it just win-lose, you'll have a lot of one-off negotiations You'll have a lot of broken relationships and you'll find that you'll run into the same people that you negotiated with over and over in your life. And I think you're a whole lot better thinking of it as a way to build a set of relationships and a reputation. Joel, in fact, in this book, you write a couple of pages about this story because I remember correctly, the, the negotiating, the bidding committee under you and your team had kind of two options for you. They had about, they had one price that gave you a 75% chance of winning this raw land, and the other one was a 95% chance of winning. Of course, you know, based on some research, but also on instincts, because no one really knew. And the fact yeah. of the matter is, you and your team members decided to overbid by a couple of million dollars, you ended up finding out, because you really wanted this land, and you felt like long-term, it was the right thing for you. You might get criticized in the short-term, but you felt like you needed to win this land enough that you were willing to perhaps overbid enough to get it. I think we all find ourselves in that negotiating spot in parts of our life, right? As you, at some point, you have enough information, you think, to make a decision, but you really have to go on your instinct. Exactly. And you can't rethink it and go back and beat yourself up because you might have gotten it for something less. Yeah. I mean, it's a waste of time and energy move forward and be and celebrate that you were able to get what you wanted to get. And if it was a fair price, it's a fair price and you'll make it work. Joel, you and your wife, Diana, have been married for how many years? 48 here soon. You just aged yourself, 48 <laughs> years. I'm 52, you've been married yeah. for 48 years. You have how many children? We have seven kids. And those seven children have given you and Diana how many grandkids? I think 27. You think 27. I think there's probably a couple more in the way. Here's why yeah. I ask. This may sound a little bit odd, but in many ways, this book is a parenting book. And it's not odd to you. It's odd to our listener. 
because one of the favorite parts of the book that I found is a lot of these maps, a lot of these lessons have not been instructed solely from your business, professorial, leadership career. They've really come from you being a spouse and a parent and a grandparent. Would you end our conversation talking a little about, about the early days in your marriage of Diana, some of the decisions you two made around how you were going to treat your family, what some of your goals were around raising your children, and how a lot of these maps were instructive on launching all of your children and your grandchildren? So I've been a big believer from early on in having a framework, having a set of principles. And I think everybody kind of embraces them when they hear them, but often we're unable to come up with them on their, our own. It took us a while to come up with a set of frameworks, but we ultimately did. We decided that there were several things that we wanted for our children. Ultimately, we wanted them to be happy, productive, mature individuals, people that we wanted to be around. And so we figured that there were a number of things that would feed into that. And uh, we came up with kind of a plan to help our kids develop emotionally, spiritually, physically, develop skill sets, et cetera. And we then populated those with various activities. And then we talked about them. And so while our kids were unaware that we were going through this uh, process, uh, they've since learned that we, we had purpose. It wasn't just picking them up and getting them to a soccer game or taking them on a vacation. We were really trying to make sure that they learned things and that they came away feeling motivated, happy, supported. I've often said that the main job you have as a parent is to be a cheerleader, not a policeman. Hmm. And so we really tried to make that uh, kind of our motto. Jill, as you know, my wife Stephanie and I have three boys together, five, eight, and soon to be 10. And we're going to, my wife and I are going to reread some of the sections about how deliberate you and Diana were because undeniably your track record, the two of you, plus your children have put together, I think, a great legacy in your family. Joel, what's next for you? You've authored two books. You have phenomenal family and, and uh, leadership, business success. What is the next, other than your political run, which we won't talk about more, which <laughs> I know is not happening right now. Uh, what's next on the horizon for you, sir? So I'm wrapping up at JetBlue. I just wrapped up this last year as chairman of the Hoover Institution, which is the think tank yeah. at the campus on the campus at Stanford. So those are two big uh, responsibilities that, I, that I'll no longer have soon, um, which gives me some more time. I will continue to teach. I'll continue to be involved in Peterson Partners, serving on boards. I've actually offered to uh, take on some governmental service kinds of things. Uh, whether or not I'll be taken up on that is yet to be seen. Yeah. Um, and then I, I think I have one more book in me. I'm not sure about that latter, but uh, I think I may. Well, I look forward to inviting you back on. I never do this, but if you're not following or connected to Joel Peterson on LinkedIn or Facebook, do so because he has a, a phenomenal following. I'm kind of jealous of your social media. To that point, I want to end the interview because you talk about social media as it relates to your brand in the book, right? About building your brand and the map. Um, you're not an avid poster, but when you post, you have phenomenal engagement. What advice would you give the entrepreneurial leader as they're looking at building their brand and communication? Where does social media play in their life and in, in, in how they communicate with others? You know, I think your brand has really developed a conversation at a time, yeah. the delivery of a promise at a time, a meeting at a time, um, you know, being consistent. 
And so I wouldn't worry that much about social media. I think uh, I, I got involved in it largely because LinkedIn asked me if I would become an influencer. Yeah. And I started to write on it and uh, on LinkedIn and somebody picked up some of my posts and they were the, actually the, the idea behind the first book, The 10 Laws of Trust. They said, you really need to write a book on this. And so once that happened, then you know other things happened and I just started posting more. Right now I'm in the midst of teaching over Zoom uh, with this um, world that we're in. Yes. And so I I've started posting my experiences on there just for other teachers and other people who are going through it. And I've found that people are really interested in it. It can actually be helpful to others. I think if you, ha if you have a way to be helpful to others, to share things that are meaningful to other people, then it's a good thing. I think if you're just promoting yourself, people are smart. They'll figure that out. And so I've always resisted that because I've never wanted my brand to be a self-promotional one. And so that'd be my view. Other people have different points of view, but that'd be mine. Joel, I think you've reinforced a lot of confidence in investors and in employees and leaders knowing that someone of your professional stature, chairman of boards and such, has so much trust put in the concept of trust. Thank you for joining us today, Joel. Best of luck to you and your family and your book launch. Thanks so much, Scott. Great to visit. Hey, thanks for you also for listening and joining. You know, not every book, not every guest warrants this next point, but I think Joel's book, Entrepreneurial Leadership, is the ideal book for a inner company, inner organization book club. I'll be buying the book for each member of my team. It's a small team. There's nine of us in thought leadership at Franklin Covey, but we're going to review these 10 maps over the next 10 weeks, I think one map a week. I strongly encourage you as leaders to buy this book for your leadership team. And if nothing less, make sure these 10 maps become discussions every week. It will transform your thinking and how you build the trust of your customers and your employees as well. Thank you for joining us today. If you're not subscribing, visit franklincovey.com. Click on the On Leadership button, subscribe, review it, rank it, rate it. You can download it on all your favorite podcast platforms. And we'll see you back here next week for our next guest. Thanks so much.